Today's reading comes from Acts chapter 17, uh, verses 22 to 33, and you can find that on page 1098 of the Church Bibles. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Uh, We live in a world where there is a great deal of choice and where people consider choice to be a good thing. Um, Choice is what we have when it comes to who runs the country. Choice is what we have when I watch television. Choice is what I have when I go to the supermarket to do my shopping. Uh, Choice is clearly an important thing to us. You've only got to have a look through Woolworths to see that. I got onto the Woolworths website to just have a look at the different choices that we actually do have. Did you know that when it comes to breakfast cereals, there are 120 different varieties of breakfast cereal that I can actually buy from Woolworths. That is not including muesli or oats products. This is just the breakfast cereal section, doesn't even include the drinks. Ice creams, 74 different varieties of ice cream. This is not counting the ones with a stick in them, paddle pops or ice blocks. This is just the tubs of ice cream, 74 different varieties. 47 different types of chocolate biscuits, 132 different sorts of dog food. I didn't know that dogs were that fussy about the food that they ate. And that's not counting the dog food that's available for puppies because there's even more when you add those ones in. Most of us love choice. It's nice to be able to have your personal preference, the thing that you want. And some people think that when it comes to faith and religion... 
Well, it's really just a matter of choice. It's really just like breakfast cereal. You choose the one that you think is the nicest, the one that suits you the best. You go with your personal preference. Well, choice is a luxury that people think that we have today, but it was a luxury that existed back in Athens, as we'll see in a little while. But if you've got your Bible, it's Acts chapter 16. Paul's now embarking on his second missionary tour or journey. His first one is shown up on the map here. Uh, We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. It was a trip that lasted for around about 18 months and it was a trip that covered around about 2,000 kilometres, much of it on foot and some uh, sailing in a boat. Well, Paul's second missionary tour is going to be considerably bigger than that. This one will be 4,000 kilometres and it will take close to three years to complete. Three years away from home. This is not a fly-in, fly-out operation where he can duck back home for the weekend. He's gone from home for three whole years, travelling right around to Greece. He begins the visit uh, of his, uh, his missionary tour by visiting some of the churches that he had established some time before to see how they're going. But then he arrives in the city of Philippi. Now, we read about three people in the city of Philippi whose lives are changed by Paul's presence there. Uh, Their lives are changed because they hear this gospel message about Jesus. And I've got to say, when you look through this list of three people, it's a very strange collection of people that we have. First of all, we read about a lady by the name of Lydia. Uh, Lydia was a businesswoman. She was running a business where she traded fabrics and she sold uh, what was called purple cloth. It doesn't mean too much to us today, but back then it was a specific sort of cloth that only came from the town of Thyatira and she was selling that, that cloth in her area. Now, for Lydia, becoming a Christian was a bit of a logical step. We're told that she was already associating with the Jewish Christians. It seems as though there was no synagogue in Philippi because Paul's first port of call was always the synagogue. But this time, his first port of call was down by the river where the Jewish people used to meet to pray. So he goes down there, explains to them about Jesus, and Lydia is one of those who comes to faith in Jesus. And not only does she come to faith, but she also hosts Paul for the time that he's in Philippi. Now, the next one is a little bit more unusual. And if you've got your Bible, Acts chapter 16 and find verse number 16. Uh, The next person whose life is transformed by the gospel is a demon-possessed slave girl. And we read about it in verse number 16. Once, when we were going, this is Luke writing... Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. The girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. It's interesting, isn't it, that even this demon-possessed girl is able to tell the truth about who Jesus is and and what Paul and his friends are doing. She is shouting that these guys serve the Most High God and if you ask them, they'll tell you how to be saved. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and I think that if Paul were looking for a public relations officer, 
this girl probably wouldn't have been on the short list. I mean, she had a whole other reputation in town. She was the demon-possessed slave girl who was used for fortune-telling. I'm not sure that she would have been on the short list as a public relations officer. She goes around town telling people their future. But here, she's shouting out, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. And then look at verse 18, look at what happens. She kept this up for many days... And finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you, come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. Paul casts out this demon, which must have been an incredible relief for this young girl to be free of this oppressive force. But this was viewed less than favorably by the master of the slave girl. Uh, she'd been a great money spinner for him. And now that source of income has dried up. So the slave girl's master grabs Paul and drags him down before the magistrate. But it's not restraint of trade or loss of income that he's taking him down to the magistrate for. Look at what they accuse him for. Verse number 19. When the owners of the slave girl realised that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, now listen to this carefully, these men are Jews who are throwing our city into uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Apparently it's lawful to have a slave girl and uh, make some money out of her telling people's fortunes, but it's somehow not right for them to talk about Jesus. Well, the magistrate makes a quick decision. Justice, or perhaps I should say injustice, was very swift back in those days. Paul and Silas are beaten immediately and then thrown into jail. And here's where we learn about the third life that was changed. We saw it in the video just a little earlier. Paul and Silas are in jail singing hymns in the middle of the night when an earthquake strikes, hits the jail, the doors fly open, their chains fall off. The jailer wakes up, seeing that the cell doors are open, naturally assumes they've all done a runner. And he knows that he will be held accountable for each of the the prisoners who have escaped. The jailer is about to commit suicide when Paul calls out and reassures him, they're all still there. We haven't gone anywhere. And when the jailer saw this, when he realised all that had happened, he's only got one question. And it's there in verse 30. Verse 29 says, The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So the jailer becomes the third member of the church in Philippi. Three lives changed. Businesswoman who sells cloth, a slave girl, and a jailer. That's the beginnings of the church in Philippi. Might seem like a strange collection of people to have in the church, but probably no stranger than what we've got sitting here this morning. Not that any of you are demon-possessed or have that in your past, even I'm not suggesting that for a moment. But, I mean, have a think about the group that we've actually got here. We've got teachers, engineers, mums, lawyers, doctors, students, retired... We've got Chinese, German, Irish, Vietnamese, Zimbabwean, Dutch, Australian, even stinking New Zealanders. 
if you can believe that. But we have one thing in common. Lives that have been impacted, changed, transformed by faith in Jesus. That was the common denominator in the church in Philippi and it's the common denominator in the church in Campbell Street. Well, after leaving Philippi, they head to Thessalonica where things start well but then soon turn sour and they move on to another town called Berea which again, there's initially a good response but eventually some of the people from Thessalonica come down and cause trouble for Paul and Silas and again, they're forced to leave town. So Paul heads on to Athens and the others wait in Thessalonica to try and smooth things over and they're going to catch up with Paul in Athens. So chapter 17, we read about Paul making his way down to Athens and he arrives there and he sees the vast array of gods that there were all around the streets of Athens and the people of Athens prided themselves on this. Athens had the reputation through the known world at that time for having this incredible number of statues and temples and shrines right throughout the whole city. They prided themselves on the fact that they had every god in the known world represented there in their city. One writer around Paul's time said that it was actually easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a man. There were that many statues all around the place. Now my guess is... Paul had never seen anything like this before in his life. I mean, this clearly stood out to him when he arrived there. What do you reckon he'd notice if he walked up and down the streets of Balmain? What would he notice about us? I mean, it's the glaringly obvious thing when he's walking around Athens. What would be the glaringly obvious thing when he walked around our streets? Well, we're not told, we're not only told what Paul saw, but we're told how he felt about what he saw. You've got it there in Acts chapter 17, verse number 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. See, Paul didn't think the variety of choices was a good thing. It's not breakfast cereal. This is serious. This this has eternal consequences. And Paul's disturbed by what he saw. A few years ago, we had a chance to visit some uh, missionary friends of ours who were living in northern Thailand in a place called Chiang Mai. Uh, and on the hill behind Chiang Mai, there is a, a, a temple, a Buddhist temple on top of the hill, uh, and a, quite a stunning place called Doi Sutep. And I have to say that when we went there, I had rather mixed feelings about being up there as well. You drive up to the mountain and you park your car in a car park and then you walk up these magnificent stairs from the car park up to where the temple is. And when you arrive where the temple is, I mean, it it is stunning. Just about everything has gold leaf all over it. Uh, And the view from up there back down onto the city of Chiang Mai is quite breathtaking. But when you see what people are doing up there, making sacrifices and offerings to a God who isn't there, uh, sending up prayers to a God who isn't listening, well, I have to say it was a little bit sad. Sad to see people who were so sincere and so passionate about what they were doing, but sincerity and passion don't make it true. 
But for Paul, it wasn't just that they were worshipping other gods in Athens. The other thing that Paul finds distressing is that they were ignoring the one true God. Now, I can't help but think that that might be what Paul notices about our society as well. It's not so much that other gods are worshipped here, that's probably not the case. We're a very atheist society. It's the fact that Australians ignore God altogether. They trust all kinds of things, but God isn't amongst the list of things that most Australians will trust. And can I say, maybe we should be a little bit more distressed by that as well, rather than just accepting it as the norm. Well, Paul started speaking as usual, but in the synagogue in Athens and then also in the marketplace in Athens, talking to them about Jesus. And eventually he's invited up to the Areopagus. Uh, the Areopagus had been a, a kind of a, a parliament building, but it had now taken on another rule, another role as they were part of the Roman Empire. And it was kind of the town hall. It was the place for discussing the latest religious and philosophical ideas. Uh, the building doesn't stand anymore, but this is the site where the Areopagus would have been. In Athens. So while Paul is there, he has the opportunity to speak to them. And he recognised that there was a statue when he had been walking around in Athens that said, to an unknown God. Uh, They believed that they had statues for all of the gods in the known world at that time, but just to be sure, to make sure that we hadn't missed any of them, this is for the God that we may have missed. I think that was the point of it. I suppose it's a little bit like the unknown soldier that we have at war memorials. I mean, we don't know who it is, but we want to make sure that no one is forgotten. And I think that was the idea with this statue to the unknown God. Well, he stands up and says, I want to talk to you about the God that you may not have heard of. Now, what Paul says in his speech starts there in verse 22, and I don't want to go through it in detail, but I just want to point out a couple of things that he says. First thing he says is that he wants to talk to them about this God that's unknown to them. And he wants to say we owe our very existence to this God. Uh, The Greeks had a whole variety of gods. They had a God for every facet of life back in those days. A, A God of wine, a God of love, a God of thunder. Well, Paul says, I'm talking about the God who rules over all things. The God of everything. The God who made everything. And then he says, and that God doesn't need you. He doesn't need you to come and serve him in temples or bring him food or supply his needs. He's the one who supplies all of your needs. But then he says, that God won't tolerate being ignored. And he says, the day has come when he will judge the world and he has given proof of this by raising Jesus from the dead. Now, I think the most remarkable thing is not so much what Paul said, though that is quite extraordinary what he gives us in this speech, but it's the way that he said it. He does this respectfully. He does this in an informed way. He understood them and their culture. He understood about their unknown God. He even quotes their own poets to them. But he didn't shy away from telling them the truth. He didn't shy away from saying that they need to turn around from the way that they're living, that they need to acknowledge this one true God. Paul's speech in Athens kind of has an almost universal quality about it, doesn't it? 
I mean, what he said in the Areopagus, well, we could stand up and say today. In Athens, they were a particularly God-conscious group of people. They couldn't avoid it. There were the statues all over the street. They were aware that in the world, things are under the control of a greater force, a greater power, a God. The problem was they didn't know exactly which God it was that they needed to worship. So they had their bases covered with all the gods there and even this statue to an unknown God. But I don't think we're that different today. I mean, like the Athenians, most Australians are still reasonably God-conscious people. More than half of the population will acknowledge that there is a God. There is a, a higher power, a force that controls things in this world. And most people in our society today are looking for some kind of meaning, some kind of understanding about where my life is heading. They're looking for the key that holds everything together. And like the Athenians, we'll settle for something less than the real thing. We'll trust a whole range of things and at the same time ignore the one true God. And I think as people whose lives have been changed and transformed by Jesus, we can actually learn a couple of things from the way that Paul handles himself in this situation. And the first thing is that I think we need to be a bit more like Paul. We need to be a bit more distressed by the world that we're living in. Not despairing, not hopeless, but recognising the seriousness of the situation. That there are so many people around us who are ignoring the one true God. Family members who don't know God, neighbours who are living as though God isn't there. People we know who are trusting things other than the one true God who will one day judge this world. This is serious. This has eternal consequences. And that should be a cause of concern for us. But the second lesson from Paul is that it's not just a matter of simply being distressed. It's then a matter of doing something about it. He talked to people about Jesus. He didn't get distressed and then race off back to Antioch and sit around with the church and talk about how dreadful things were in Athens. He talked to the people in Athens. He spoke to them in the marketplace. He spoke to them in the Areopagus. He spoke to them respectfully. He spoke to them understanding what it was that they believed. And we need to speak to people as well. Speak to family members, speak to neighbours, speak to workmates, speak to the people who we know who seem to have no place for God in their life. We need to love them enough to tell them about Jesus. We need to care for them enough that we want them to know God the way that we do. That we want to see their lives transformed by faith in Jesus. Jesus.